We're reading out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verse 1 to 4. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying. As he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. Hi, everybody. Good to be with you. We are continuing today in the Gospel of Luke, and we're turning our attention over the next number of weeks specifically to the prayer that Jesus gives his disciples. I'm not sure how we learn how to pray. We probably pick up patterns from all kinds of people and places. Do we pray like we talk with our parents, whatever a parent has been to us? Do we pray like we talk with our friends, at least the ones who will listen? Do we pray like we talk to the CRA with reluctance and trepidation? Prayer is different things to all of us. To some, prayer is largely law. It's something we should do or else, kind of obligation that we better attend to to keep in God's good books, which can lead to a feeling of, of objectification. To others, prayer is largely a list just an asking for what we want and, and nothing much more, where God ideally is now uh, on demand and as reliable as Amazon. And in a sense where God is now somewhat objectified. For others, prayer is lonely because it's so very quiet. And we ask as Welsh poet and priest R.S. Thomas asked, is this where God hides from my searching? because there's no other sound in the darkness but the sound of a man breathing, testing his faith on emptiness, nailing his questions one by one to an untenanted cross. Or is prayer something else? Not all law, not all list, not all loneliness, but also love. The space that we enter to be held, to be reassured and shaped well, for most of us, prayer is probably a messy mix of all four of those things. Thankfully, we're given a life raft when it comes to prayer. And that life raft is the prayer that Jesus gave his first followers when they asked him how they should pray. And when we stop to think about it, why would we start anywhere else but Jesus' feet, as Mary did in the story just ahead of these words that we heard from Dave last week? And that story reminds us, among other things, that we don't need to have a certain GPA to get into Jesus' school of prayer or to have a certain background or even a certain sex. Everyone can pray with Jesus. And that's part of what we're seeing in the Mary and Martha story from last week. It's not only has Mary chosen the best thing, prioritizing Jesus, she has been prioritized by Jesus herself. She has been made room for along with the men. As with some other women, Mary was as close to Jesus as, as almost anyone. Given the same information, you could say the same authority. So Mary's not just at Jesus' feet for a sweet, 
little devotional moment in that story. She's placed there to learn and pass on everything Jesus brings. And given the many challenges that, that we still face when it comes to inequality between the sexes um, and inequity kind of in general, uh, we should let stories like these shape our practice increasingly. We're told often in Luke's gospel that, that Jesus prayed all the time and in various ways. He slips away from the crowds to pray. He spends whole nights in prayer. He prays all alone. He prays spontaneously. And he prays in the middle of a crisis. And it seems that Jesus' patterns reflect someone who related to prayer in terms of dependence rather than discipline, alignment rather than demand, and obedience rather than ob uh, obligation. However he prayed, his disciples were watching and listening, and they asked him how to pray. What results is the prayer that is recorded in Matthew and in Luke's Gospels and has been shown by uh, recent scholarship not simply to be a prayer to pray, but the very shape of Jesus' mission itself passed into the lives of his first followers. The prayer, if we were to look at it closely from a historical perspective in Israel's scriptures, reflects Israel's history. Jesus' fulfillment then of Israel's vocation and the new exodus and kingdom that he is leading people into. As others have said, how we pray will tell us a fair bit about how we live. So the idea might be that by giving attention to this prayer, by Jesus giving his disciples this prayer, the Lord's prayer, we're not only learning how to pray as Jesus would have us pray, but are learning how to live as Jesus would have us live. So we're going to spend the next few weeks in Jesus' prayer, but today we're going to begin with kind of an overview of the whole thing, just enough to get us going this week if we've never prayed this prayer before, or for others of us, kind of a refresher on what's going on in, in such familiar words. So let's begin. Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy, or holy is your name. As one writer puts it, to pray our Father is to pray as Jesus prayed and to stand where Jesus stands. And where Jesus stands is the place where he hears a voice at his baptism, which says, this is my dearly loved child, whom I am very pleased with. So because of Jesus, those very words ring out over every Christian too. The prayer begins not with a what or a why or a how or a, or a when, begins with a who. How do you start a conversation? Hopefully by name. Now, we all know how disappointing and even painful it is when someone we hope we have a connection with either doesn't know or doesn't use our name. To be known is first to be named, and we are told to name God as Father, the one who calls Humans his children, Hosea 11, and Israel his firstborn child, that's Exodus 4. Who is God? Our loving Father, parent of all creation. Who are we? Dearly loved children, standing in Jesus' name, 
whom God is smiling over. And we can't move into the rest of the prayer unless we grasp God's character and the intimate uh, intention, the, 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 the sheer love that is found within those opening words. And that might reframe for many of us our whole orientation towards God. A loving parent smiling over a deeply treasured child. This character, this person that we've named is holy. Holy is your name. You know, we could spend weeks unearthing what holiness means to God, but today it might be uh, enough to say that if someone is holy, they're separate. They're differentiated. Some would even say treasured. God is distinct from all creation, a source that we can't pretend to fully understand beyond our comprehension and therefore worthy of our full attention. A name unlike any other name, a being unlike any other being, with a character unlike any other character. To call God holy really is just to admit that God is not us and we are not God. To say that God is special, not just to us, but entirely special to everyone and everything that we can see and touch and smell and feel. God is holy. And speaking of, of us, praying to our Father, to this, this holy God, uh, we should also point out that prayer is, is always plural, isn't it? Luke's gospel doesn't give us the hour ahead of the Father as Matthew does, but the shape of the whole prayer is still clearly communal in both versions. Well, what I mean by that is prayer is, is never solitary, even when it feels incredibly lonely. We're always praying, in a sense, together to our Father, which means that prayer takes us not only in God's direction, but towards and alongside other people. Imagine the person praying with you at this very moment in China, in the Ukraine, in Brazil. You know, it's more than likely that there are many churches talking about prayer right now, even praying the Lord's Prayer together right now in this very moment with us. There's a unity that comes in prayer, just the knowledge that we never pray in a vacuum. We're not separate from God. We're not separate from one another. We are deeply interconnected. And along with that interconnection, we're going to see also that praying Jesus' words it not only sits us down in vulnerability with God, but it sits us down in vulnerability with others, whether we're physically with them or not. You could say that prayer is, is always something of a team-building exercise. Moving on. Now, your kingdom come. And Matthew would add, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just back in July, our second daughter, uh, was born. We brought her home from the hospital and introduced uh, the siblings, uh, the, the, the girls to each other. And, and even though our eldest was barely two at the time, it wasn't long before she was involved in fetching diapers and talking to the baby and helping out. In fact, that very day, that's the kingdom, you could say, of family life. And I'd imagine that the more kids you have, the, the more that this this happens, you know, that's why people can run farms back in the day. They just had lots of children and, and some people do still around the world. 
If you're in the family, you're, you're just about the family business. So once named and known right away, we're tossed in at the deep end of God's family business. Right away, Jesus' prayer sets this premise that God is actually up to something and that we are a part of that something. Not on the periphery, but right in the middle of it. So we're not starting that prayer with God with forgive me or I need this or please do something about my awful coworker. But the awareness that we're very little parts of some very big goings on in the universe outside of our, our limited experience of things. We are enlisted, you could say, into Jesus' mission in the world in the way that he is taking things. We're aligning with Jesus rather than simply asking Jesus to align with us. As another writer says, we, we therefore might need to be dethroned by these words when we're praying them. Our little kingdoms need to come into submission to God's kingdom. Because after all, if we're praying that, that heaven would come to earth and be shaped and the kingdom would come to earth, we are, we are little bits of earth ourselves. So prayer is not first where we close in on God to narrow God down, but where God opens us up to the wide possibilities of his life through our life. Which means that by praying Jesus' prayer, we'll find ourselves not so much praying and asking to know what God's will specifically is for my life, though that's, that's actually also not a bad thing to pray, but, but more so we're asking what Jesus' character looks like and how our choices might align with his way of going. You know, and I think that an incredible amount of pressure is actually lifted by just praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. So many of us are hurried and tired and anxious that everything comes down to the dent that we hope to make in the world. Not least those of us who are living in our young adult or even maybe our, our teenage years. What on earth am I supposed to do? Many of us ask. But this prayer reorients that question. It, it, it changes it a little bit. In a way, God's life and work fills up the foreground as, as we recede a little bit into the background. And that's what I mean by the pressure coming off. It's what people who don't even pray, you know, in the Christian tradition might call gaining perspective through various meditative practices. But for the Christian, this can be a great joy also giving great purpose where the pressure is lifted and the possibilities begin to open up. You know, we can be anxious about a lot of things, which we're going to get into in a, in a moment, but something that we never have to be anxious about as a people of faith is whether or not we matter. That, that kind of existential crisis that we all face in various seasons of our of our life, which drives us to unhealthy ambition and to selfish choices. So really, we can be salespeople, we can be nurses, we can be spouses, teachers, lawyers, parents, tradespeople, business people, students. We could be classically trained clowns. Many of us will do a number of things in life, various relationships, various roles, various careers. Jesus' prayer insists that it matters maybe less what exactly we're doing and more how we're doing it. How the light of Jesus' character 
filters through the stained glass lives that we're creating, that we're crafting. Give us today our daily bread. As mentioned earlier, there's plenty of things to be anxious about. Food on the table stands for all those things uh, that we need and we can't deny that we need them. And this language actually is lifted almost like right out of Exodus 16, when God makes food for the Hebrew people in the wilderness. And it might also bring to mind Jesus feeding the crowds who followed him around simply because they needed something. One scholar, Tom Wright, puts it this way. This clause in the Lord's Prayer reminds us that our natural longings for bread and for all that it symbolizes are not to be shunned as though they were of themselves evil. God knows our desires in order that we may turn them into prayer, in order that they may be sorted out, straightened out, untangled, and reaffirmed. We are taking the first steps from chaos of our normal interior life towards an order and clarity which will let the joy come through to the surface. In bringing them into prayer within the setting of the earlier petitions for God's honor, his kingdom, and his will, it asks for our desires to be satisfied in a way, in God's way, and in God's time. And since God himself is most truly the object of our hunger, this clause asks that we may be fed with God himself. Once we put the prayer for daily bread within the whole kingdom prayer where it belongs, to turn then to a specific things we honestly need right now is not trivial. It is precisely what children do when they love and trust the one they call Father. So daily, we can ask and should ask for what we need, which might remind us again of prayer's intimacy and dependence. To ask for something is a vulnerable thing to do. Another writer points out that there is, there's also power in a request. So asking itself is a powerful thing and we shouldn't take it lightly, which is why we suspect that Jesus tells the odd story about being persistent in asking for what we need or, or what we want. After all, it's, it's not as if we're interacting with some kind of cosmic vending machine with God. But at times we make so many rules for God. We make so many rules for prayer and how we think prayer works, and we forget that we're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of a person. We're not made in the image of a photocopier. What would you do if I asked you for something again and again? Would you give me what I want just because I'm persistent? Well, who knows? But there's a lot of factors to consider, isn't there? There's a lot of dynamics. And that's the reality with God, too. We appeal to God's good character and trust that he will give us what we need in due time. And as any caregiver knows, sometimes a request is granted a child. Sometimes it isn't, for reasons that are often unapparent. As Dallas Willard writes, prayer is nothing but a proper way for persons to interact. When we ask, we ask as persons to a person and avoid overly convoluting the situation with rules and objectification in the process. We're growing, really, in all that asking and receiving. We're growing in intimacy and trust. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted against us. 
You know, once we ask for what we need, the bread of grace being chief among our needs, we're, we're immediately faced with what others might need from us, which is also grace. We've got a real knack, though, of somehow pulling God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of other people apart. You know, Jesus told a pretty harrowing story about this kind of thing in the parable of the unmerciful debtor in Matthew 18. And when you read that story, it sounds a bit ridiculous that someone let off the hook in such a dramatic fashion would have such a short memory that they are absolutely unwilling to let someone else off the hook that very next moment. You know, sometimes Jesus' stories are meant to sound a little ridiculous to point out the sheer silliness of how we go about things as human beings. So the words about forgiveness in Jesus' prayer are as intentional as any here. In fact, some would argue they're, they're the very center of all of Jesus' mission, life, and kingdom in the world. Forgiveness is not an isolated incident between God and me. Forgiveness is the freedom that I have been led into. Again, this, this new exodus. As others have pointed out, refusing to free one another is in a way to deny our own freedom, to, to serve someone salt water when God's given us fresh water. You'll remember that part about the kingdom at the beginning. And as I said, forgiveness is a central part of that, maybe the main part. If we're enlisted into Jesus' kingdom, that family, and we're asking for that kingdom to press up through our lives, then offering and receiving forgiveness continually is something we just have to get used to. And remembering again that our praying tells us about our living, this is the main way in which prayer leads us into further community and intimacy rather than away from it. The only thing that gets in the way of intimacy is hurt. And without forgiveness, without healing, we'll remain a long way off from one another. Forgiveness is the way, actually, the kingdom expands. And do not lead us into the time of trial or, or lead us out of temptation, as other translations say. And, and Matthew in his version adds, but rescue us from the evil one. The ending here in Luke's version, I think is another reminder that this isn't simply a prayer but is the shape of Jesus' whole mission in the world. I mentioned Tom Wright earlier. He also points out that Jesus himself asks to be delivered from his trials in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he wasn't, and he faced the cross. He chose that direction. The wonderful news there is that we can ask for deliverance and hear yes, because Jesus heard no. So this is an obvious request for God to lead us away from very trying times, which comes at the hands of evil forces in the world. And it bears remembering that there's plenty of evil out there and there's plenty of evil in here, which is perhaps why that word temptation is found in many of our translations. The prayer here ultimately though is for deliverance, you could say, which again tells us that, that deliverance, freedom, renewal, is the end game in God's kingdom. 
a kingdom that's not fully evident yet. It's arrived, but not fully arrived. It's, it's pressing up as grass through hard ground. So the end of this prayer carries with it, I think, the hope of heaven, the hope of a good future, the hope of a new creation. We pray to be safely led through the crucible and into rest. And why pray for new possibilities if there's no hope of them ahead? That's why Christianity is a faith all about hope. For me, you know, this last line hits quite deep in this season as we get closer to a two-year anniversary of all been facing the pandemic. And it stirs up images for me of a child in the dark or maybe a child in an overwhelming crowd looking and grasping for their parent's hand. In prayer, the hand is grasped, held, and led somewhere, pulled along maybe even, away from danger, through the darkness, towards the light. So for today, I think we'll, we'll kind of stop there as a general overview. And in the coming weeks, Kirsten and Dave and Rick are going to be digging in further, which is, is no doubt going to be really helpful. There's always more to say. There's always more to learn about the Lord's Prayer. And the temptation is, honestly, to do a lot of talking about it and never settle down to actually praying it. And if praying is really also about living, then it's probably in our best interest as Jesus followers to get praying this prayer as quickly as possible and then to see what it does to our living. I'll say personally that I've never found praying the Lord's Prayer easy. It's always a mix of comforting reassurance and honest realignment. You know, you're, you feel like you're in this space again where you remember who you are with God and, and, and God in that space helps you remember who you really are as well as made in his image. You know, there's a term that's used in various coaching schools, which applies, I think, quite well to prayer in general. But in this prayer in particular, when we pray Jesus' prayer, we might say that we are safe, but we're not always comfortable. We're safe in that we're known and loved and secure with our Father. We're safe because he isn't negligent and provision is always at the ready. But we're not always comfortable because this is a God we're talking with. This is, this is someone we're expecting some good parenting from, some good leadership in this relationship. We're shaped, we're reformed into that family likeness that we sometimes try so hard to forget about ourselves, the image of God, the likeness of Jesus. So when we pray this prayer, when we live this prayer, we're safe, we're not always comfortable, and that's the place that we can expect to grow. <laughs>